I want to share one last thought with you before we begin to worship. Someone had reminded me of this quote not long ago. There's a lady in the Nazarene heritage by the name of Mildred Bangs Winecoop. Uh, she was born in 1905. I believe she died about 1997. So not too far removed from our uh, life here and in, in, uh, many of us shared years in life in, this, in the same way. Her uh, impact on the Nazarene church was a big one. Uh, an ordained elder in the church of the Nazarene, but also an accomplished theologian, uh, speaker, and, uh, and teacher. Uh, one of the things though she said, I, I find very intriguing and also very encouraging. Uh, she said that there was no room for dull worship. No room for dull worship. As a matter of fact, she continued on and said, those who participate in dull worship will make it to heaven, but they have to come through the side door. I think that's kind of funny, you know what I mean? But it's also making a very solid point. We're not here this morning to be bumps on the log. We're here because we get the chance this morning to praise our God for who He is, to praise our God for what He's done in our life. I mean, very, very easy to see looking around this morning. You can easily name the people who are dealing with illness, the folks that are not able to be here because they're not feeling well. And we'll pray for them this morning, absolutely. We have the chance this morning, feeling as well as we may feel, to walk into this space, but to be able to be here this morning to praise our God, and that is not something that is dull. Amen? We're going to go to Micah chapter 6 in a minute. I'd invite you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, Micah chapter 6. It's one of those, it's kind of hard to find. It's a smaller, one of the minor prophets. If you find Malachi, that's the very last person, uh, very last book in the Old Testament, go back about six books, all right, and you'll find Micah. Um, he's right after Jonah. There you go. So somewhere in a lot of those really small books, it's sometimes hard to find. Uh, but once you find it, we'll be in Micah chapter 6 here in just a moment. Now, it's real easy sometimes with the amount of people and the amount of names that are in the Bible, it's also an, an easy one to assume that maybe because the same name, we have the same people. Some of you remember the Micah uh, in Judges where he talks about building a chapel so that God will do him good. It's an incredible story and great lessons learned. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the same Micah. So this Micah we're talking about now is a, uh, is a minor prophet as opposed to the one that uh, we read about in the book of Judges. So in Micah chapter 6, you read this story and it's one that applies. I love the fact that we read these stories in the Bible uh, and the stories that we read, this one specifically is from about 700 to 720. 25 BC. That's his active time frame. So, you know, we're talking, I mean, really, really close to 3,000 years ago, but in that 2700 range. I mean, it's been a long time since this took place. And yet the things that are going on seem to be so, uh, so common in something that applies to us in modern day today as well. Now, Micah the prophet has a bit of a vision, and this is a bit of an interaction that we're going to be reading between himself and what God is saying. And so it looks a little bit, uh, and you kind of need to read it that way, it looks a little bit odd because this is kind of a, a back and forth between a, a prophet who's trying to communicate what God is saying. Uh, and so that's what we're reading about this morning. Micah chapter 6, not going to ask you to stand because we're going to go through this text one, <clears throat> one section at a time through the morning. So listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against His people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. How many of you have served on a jury in the past? Oh, what a wonderful blessing to be a part of. Amen? 
Now, I know many times that comes along with a little bit of negative connotation because your life has to be uprooted to go serve in a jury. But in the reality is, when we think of courtrooms, that's usually what we picture a judge and a group of peers who are speaking toward giving direction about whether this is right or wrong, guilty, not guilty, whatever it may be. That's the system that we have in place. And though sometimes it may be a bit uh, frustrating to our personal schedule, I'm grateful for a jury of peers system. Amen? It's a good system. Not that there aren't other systems that can work, but this is a good system. Multiple people speaking into what is right and wrong, and I appreciate that more than having one person who at the end of the day just makes that decision. And so when we think of a courtroom, that's kind of how we think about things. In a very similar way, you get this picture that Micah is painting, except he's talking about God. So I mean, like, who would God have as the one to hear the case? What would God have there to to hear the case? Now, he's painting a very visual picture that you kind of have to unplug from what you see in a courtroom with maybe a a bench and a group where chairs are over here and a couple of places where maybe a couple of attorneys sit and those sorts of things. Kind of unplug from that and kind of wipe that from your mind and ask the question, well, like, if, if God were pleading his case, who would he plead his case to? Who, who would he speak to be able to hear what he has to say that would bring credence or credibility or, or, or be just in the speaking towards something that may be a bit of, a, uh, of an injustice? It would not be, some of you think about the things that are going on, and, and there's a specific reference to mountains here. Let me tell you, it would not be the water, okay? If God, especially in their context, was going to, to lean upon something to be that which would hear the case, it would not be water. Because in their world, water represented the, the places of chaos and fear and turmoil. If you remember, even in this story of creation, it is the Spirit of God that is hovering over the waters of chaos. You don't want the waters of chaos being what you are pleading to, to give guidance and direction. Amen? So it wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be the desert. It wouldn't be, even though there are places, even the ocean, gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful. But it wouldn't be that because the waters of chaos, in the same way the vastness and kind of the, you know, there are things that are so beautiful and yet their reality is they are absolutely deadly. Have any of you been to the Badlands in the Dakotas? Not, I mean, gorgeous to look at, you know, similar to the Grand Canyon. Beautiful to look at, amen? But not very hospitable. Not very good for humanity in the way of like bringing about life. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't want to use something like the deserts or the great chasm because it doesn't represent that that God would be calling upon. I think it's interesting that as Micah is painting this picture of what will he call upon, it is the thing that is immobile. The thing that is immovable. It doesn't move on its own and I can't move it. It is something that has been there that is there that man can't construct. It is something that when we look to the mountains, we look so with a sense of awe and beauty very often. Matter of fact, there are those who will not be in Sunday morning service this morning because they're on vacation. And guess where? In the mountains. That's where people go sometimes for that place of seeing what is both beautiful but, in, 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 but also uh, unshakable. The things that, that, that cannot be influenced so when you think about the, the, the jury, if you will, or the, the making accusations and who will I plead my case before, it makes perfect sense that God would plead His case to the mountains. That which cannot be moved, that is steady, that is solid. I know it doesn't sound right because we like to think about pleading a case to people, but Mike is creating this, this kind of imagery for people to be able to hear and to be able to see as it's taking place in front of them. And then he goes further into the next verse, and this is what God is saying in front of the mountains and about the people of Israel. My people, what have I done to you? 
How have I burdened you? Answer me. Folks, if you read that too quickly, you just fly right past. These are, these are big questions that God is asking. Like, what have I done and how have I burdened you? Answer me, people. I brought you up out of Egypt, God continues, and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam, my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Some of your uh, contexts will say, or your Bibles will say, Acacia to Gilgal. Same uh, meaning. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Here, almost as if an attorney pleading case. Hear God saying these words, which does not, I know this doesn't line up very well theologically with us because God isn't necessarily needing to justify himself to us. Okay? God is not dependent on us in order to, to survive. He does not need us necessarily in the sense that he will not continue on. God has always been and will always be. So God doesn't need you to convince himself that he's God. All right? Don't get that in your mind. But what he's trying to do is trying to convince his people of who he is. And he's asking these very specific questions. Like, how have I burdened you? Like, what have I done to you? Ever been there? Like, what, what caused this? And then he starts going back and saying, like, look at the things I have done for you. I brought you up out of Egypt. When you think about being redeemed from the land of slavery, I mean, he's immediately conjuring up these memories for them of like, don't you remember when you made bad decisions? You ever hear the phrase, play stupid games, win stupid prizes? Israel lived that way a lot, okay? They played stupid games and they won stupid prizes because God let them get their, their spoils, okay? He let them win. And when they won, it was oftentimes they were fighting for something that was against God. And God finally goes, fine, you can have it. Even though I'm telling you not to do this, you can have it. And in a lot of ways, Egypt is one of those pictures. There are a lot of other pictures that are even more so when they ask for a king. Oh, my gracious. But in the story of like of being in Egypt, they find themselves there and slowly over time they continue to grow in numbers and then they allow themselves to be, become subject to uh, slavery and being used by the Egyptians. And so they find themselves in this great travesty in life and they cry out to God and say, God, help us out of this. And this, this is God reminding them, don't you remember as the people when you cried out to me? Don't you remember when those things were going wrong and I took care of you? Not only did I take care of you, but I mean, think about this. You were redeemed. You were, you were bought back and brought out of the land of slavery. I sent Moses to take care of you, to guide you in that direction, which when you read the story, they didn't exactly treat Moses well along the way. Amen? I mean, like, how many times did they say this phrase? It's one that makes me laugh and also is a bit shameful because of, like, I know the mentality that creates this within people. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you could have left us there to die? That's a question that gets asked over and over. It's the people being ungrateful for what God's done for them. They have this kind of cycle in their life. He's saying, remember, I'm the one who took care of you in those ways. He goes a little bit further and talks about my people. Remember Balak, king of Moab, what he plotted against you, and Balaam, son of Beor. If you remember that story, it's a fascinating one. We have a prophet who is sent by a king in an attempt to like curse these people. And instead of cursing them, he keeps blessing them. But Balak wants to destroy them. And you want to know the way that Balak destroys them? He infiltrates them slowly through relationships of cultures. And the Israelite people begin to put up with what the Moabite people are doing. And not only put up with it, but they begin to embrace it. And before you know it, they have become completely disengaged from the people that God called them to be. Whole nother sermon, but some of your minds should be spinning there. 
Remember, it was not me, God is saying, who did that to you. The prophet spoke blessings upon you and you continued. You would not listen. You would not do what I ask you to do. And because of your actions, the king of Moab overtook you in a different way, but overtook you and began to destroy you as the people of God. And this is what happens. Do you remember? You chose that. I did not. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, Acacia to Gilgal, referencing that story from one side of the Jordan to the other, from one area to another. Folks, do you remember? It's one of the most beautiful pictures. When, when Micah is talking about these things, the images that will be playing back in their minds, the stories that they're immediately going to be remembering, are just the, the synapses in their brains are just firing wide open, right? When he talks about this, and one of the pictures that sticks out in my mind, I remember reading in the Old Testament, is when they come up out of the water, that they're told to go back, one from each tribe or one group from each tribe, and they gather these huge stones from the bottom of where the river was, and they begin to bring those stones out, and they make an altar or a place of remembrance there so that they can always remember that this is where God allowed our people to cross. This is where God did something miraculous for us. And so they establish this big rock structure to remind them, you know where that place is? It's Gilgal. You know, it, it's one of the things like, again, another sermon for another day, but like it's what motivates other people in the Bible. They see the stones of Gilgal and then they're then motivated to deliver the people of Israel from some sort of atrocity. Folks, when, when Micah is, 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 when God is saying these things through Micah to the people, all right, when he's saying these things, the mental pictures that are exploding in these people's minds and he's saying it all within the context of what have I done to you? How have I actually burdened you? These are the things that I have done for you. This is, this is what I have done. God is pleading his case to these people. And it sounds super, super odd for God to be pleading his case. Notice in the tone of this, by the way, the tone of this is not accusatory or demanding or convicting. Have any of you ever had a dog that got, in, got into it with a skunk? We have a dog at our house. She's like 113 years old. I don't know how old she really is. I just know she's really, really old. She doesn't move fast anymore, but she's a great dog. Her name's Molly. She's built like a bear, okay? So she's like a barrel with little legs coming out. That's about the best way I can describe her. She loves cold weather. If you ever come to my house and it's snowing outside and she's laying in the front yard, don't come rescue her. Okay, rescue is a new word for stealing your neighbor's dog. All right, don't do that. All right, my dog loves the cold. As a matter of fact, can't wait to get outside. She will sit outside sometimes when it's 30 degrees and she's panting. All right, it's still that hot for her. So my dog, she had to learn a lesson a few years ago. She got into it with a skunk. She came back smelling. It was horrible. We don't know what to do in order to make the skunk smell go away. I asked an old timer and I said, what do you do to make the skunk smell go away? He said, there's one way to do it. I said, what's that? He said, bury her for 10 days. <laughs> don't think that accomplishes what I'm trying to do, but I appreciate your help, okay? But in the next time, I remember we were there. Matter of fact, it was a beautiful night. Uh, Logan, he was a, a young teenager at this point in the game, my oldest, my son, and and he had some buddies over, and they were going to camp. You know, they had a little tent. They were going to camp down at the foot of the hill back behind our house. And every 30 minutes to an hour, I would walk out on the back porch, and I would kind of cut my ears and listen to make sure the boys were still down there. If, if I can hear them, they're alive. Some of you parent like that. I get it. So if I hear them, it means they're alive down there. So I would listen. 
And I can remember them down there, a bit of a commotion, and I had just walked back out the next time to check on them again. And when I came out the back door, it was like skunk wafting up that hillside. I was like, oh my gracious, this is horrible. And then I'm like, tell me those boys are not sprayed by a skunk because they are not coming back in this house. And as they walk, as I, like, I hear stuff, I thought it was them, but I, I heard something coming up out of the woods, and I'm going, well, it can't be. Maybe it's the skunk. I don't know what it is. Molly. She comes walking up in the backyard, and I'm standing up on the porch. And of course, this the porch where we used to live, it was a straight downhill like this, you know. And I see her come walking back up out of the thick stuff. And I said, Molly, and she looks up at me. I said, Did you get into a skunk again? Molly goes, <laughs> You know, when you get asked a question that they already know the answer? You know what I mean? Like, it was purely like, I knew she was her. I knew it was her without a question, you know? And like, when you get asked that question, like, it's not a sincere question. It's a sarcastic, accusatory question because you already know the answer. Can you hear the way God is asking this question? What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Please answer me. Because all I can see is remember the things that I have done for you. Their response is one that has, it's caused me to rethink the way I read it. This is the response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before, bow down before the exalted God? Verse 6, Micah 6, verse 6. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I heard this one time and early on read it in such a way. And it always confused me because I read it as if he was being sincere. As if he was in this place of sincere like, oh God, what should I bring before you? What, like that's the response of the people. Like, what should I bring before you? And then I, I start like lining up in my head like, but this doesn't make sense. I mean, come before you with a burnt offering, with a ca okay, a calf a year old, that, that I can make peace with that. But would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Do you think that is real? Who on the earth can actually please God if that's the case? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I kill my child? to make you happy. Consider this for a moment from a little bit different set of lenses. What in the world do you want from me, God? You will never be happy. What could I possibly do to make your life better? It feels a bit weird to ask those questions in that mode. Yet we all can relate to times when we are angry with God, and that is our tone. I don't know that I read this man's or this, this response from the people, essentially. I don't know that I read this response from a place of sincerity anymore, but more of a frustrated and angry and a resentful place. What could, what could you possibly even want? Yeah, I could bring you a burnt calf. I tell you what, if a burnt calf is good enough, how about a thousand rams? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? How about a kill my boy? What do you want? That's the tone. Like, that's the place that this is coming from of like, what in the world could you possibly want? 
Folks, when you are in a place of resentment toward God, it is typically from a place of helplessness or hopelessness because you don't feel like you have a way to be able to respond to God in a real way. Maybe it's from the angers or the frustrations or the things that you've dealt with, but maybe it's because He has told you and showed you what all He has done for you, and now almost in a, in a frustrated place you feel inadequate, inferior. It almost seems like, like what in the world could you possibly do? And then this is the response. It's probably one that you may even have an artwork in your house. Some of you recognize this Micah 6 chapter. You recognize where we were headed from where we, when we began. And it, it started lining up of like more contextually where this next passage is. Some of you, though, you're now reading this and you're going to go, oh, that's the place that this answer comes from. And here's the answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. It is to act justly. It is to love mercy and it is to walk humbly with your God. <clears throat> I believe I've read this passage maybe through different lenses, and I would suggest I've read it through more accurate lenses in recent years as opposed to how I read it earlier on. Because the place of crying out to God from frustration, helplessness, and hopelessness is a reality that people deal with no matter if it was 700 B.C., 720 B.C., 1700 A.D., or 2000 or 2023 A.D. There are places and times when we find ourselves in those, place, in those moments and in those segments of time that create such helplessness, hopelessness, and uncertainty of like, how am I to respond, especially in relationship to God? How, how are we to respond to God? I sometimes feel as if I watch people around me who are living life <clears throat> and as they face the frustrations of this earth and the uncertainties and the chaos that they see taking place, those things begin to be very dominating in, in who they are and how they see things. It's oftentimes a, a poor perspective that gets us so sidetracked in, in tangential arguments to life. I think it would be great to identify some of those things that seem to be tangential. It doesn't mean that they don't have merit. It doesn't mean that they, that they aren't of value to have conversations, but they seem to railroad us in very, very real ways. Maybe even I would ask you before I start giving a few of them, what are the things in our lives that cause in people's existence a feeling of hopelessness or helplessness or that frustration with, with you know, how is God allowing this type thing or, or this frustration with God and not knowing like how to respond in the midst of the chaos or the, the things that we're sensing on this earth, I, I don't laugh at because I don't want to make light of, but it is, it is a bit concerning to see sometimes how people can act as if relatively small things in the scheme of eternity become huge. Arguments over things like oil use. Not that that's not a good conversation, okay? But is that like the core of who we are, you know? We get wrapped up in that. We see this in, in the political arena where leadership changes. You know, we go, from, we go from one president who has very obvious and blatant uh, moral dilemmas to one who has trouble sometimes, you know, speaking clearly in front of people, putting sentences together. And, and you have those things taking place, and it leaves you in a place of like, of a no win. And it leaves you in a place of, of helplessness and hopelessness. And people sometimes get frustrated at God and with God because of the uncertainties that they may even see because politically it seems like a bit of chaos in their world. 
you start opening up the, the discussions of how to handle a life where gender is now in question. Sexuality is, is there's just no telling. Uh, people identifying not just from a gender standpoint, but from how they feel for the day. Uh, watching, uh, speaking of courts and laws, but watching people claim their change in identity because it helps them better make their case in a courtroom. You know, that's the kind of stuff we're watching unfold in front of us. And if we're not very careful, it's not that all of those things are good discussions to have and things that we need to be talking about, things that we need to be making decisions about. By the way, the church has done a major disservice in past years by sticking our head in the sand and acting like those issues don't exist. So let's not do that. Okay, let's work better at talking about things in a constructive way, navigating through the difficulties of life. Let's work through those things, speak our opinions and make room for someone else to speak their opinions. And let's work through those things. Okay, that's a very biblical way of operating. And yet, as we as we think about those things, the trouble is we can sometimes get so consumed with those tangents of life that it creates the same mentality of hopelessness and helplessness of like, what can I actually do? And I've, I, I talk to people as they, as they start wrestling with asking God, maybe even how have you allowed some of this to happen? Or God, where are you in the midst of this? My suggestion to you this morning is, if you will hear the last portion of this text, it puts so many other things in better alignment and proper order in your life. Rather than being lost in tangents of life, rather than being lost in, in, in some of those tangents, what would it look like if we as the church begin to do what Micah is giving as, this is what the Lord requires of you. To work diligently at acting justly. To work consistently at loving mercy. And to walk daily humbly with your God. Yes, preacher, as you would probably respond in a court setting, because that's what this picture is. You would probably respond, but I don't understand how acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly answers my questions about how to handle those other things that you just mentioned. I'm not suggesting that these words answer your questions, but they will absolutely keep you in proper perspective over what is to be worried about. What is to be worked at diligently and my experience has been when a group of people come together and work diligently at acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with their God, those tangents that used to consume you and be what was defining in your life become backburners because the most important thing you realize in all of eternity is making sure that people know who Jesus is as their Lord and Savior because their opinion about oil, presidents, and sexuality and gender will fall secondary to whether or not they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Amen? So that's what we will work at. We will be the people who, though it is tempting sometime to look up at God and say, what do you want? What, what could we possibly do? Or, or what is, this comes from a place of resentment because of their walking away from God. What in the world is happening is another good question to be asked in this. And yet this simple, concise, yet difficult to work out response. We will work EC and family, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. God, we come before you this morning recognizing that this text is not one that answers the infinite small question, but it is a core and an anchor to how we are to approach this life that we're living. And so it is our 
request and our cry and our plea toward You, God, help us to be the people who keep centered the things that are of eternal nature on this earth. Help us to keep centered what it means to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Help us to keep central what it means to focus on knowing Jesus Christ and making Him known to the people in our lives as well. And then, maybe even then, would You guide us through some of the things we're unsure about as a people, as a total people. As we work on those tangents, help us to work on them as tangents, but remembering our core. God, we love You today. We thank You for who You are, and we look forward to what else You have in store for us this week. It is Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.